0: Let's pray together, Lord we're so grateful for your word, we thank you that you continue to speak to us through it, and we ask that um, as we come now with open and obedient hearts that you would speak to us now, you would lead us, you would guide us, that we would know how you're calling us to follow you, to be like you, to be recreated more and more into your image and your likeness. We pray this in Jesus name, amen. Uh, Our passages this week are beautiful, but I'm just going to focus on the gospel passage this week, Luke chapter 13. And that passage actually comes uh, at the end of a long teaching episode where Jesus had been teaching thousands of people. Luke chapter 12 begins with these words. When so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling over one another, Jesus began to say, And from there, he goes on to give a series of teaching that take up the entirety of Luke chapter 12, and they go all the way until our passage today in Luke Luke 13. And that teaching uh, that Jesus has been giving is pretty far reaching. It began with a call to avoid hypocrisy. It spoke of having no fear and trusting God. It spoke of acknowledging God before worldly authorities and standing in allegiance with him. It spoke of the fallacy that wealth produces peace and security and called us to contentment and trust in God. And then it ended with the call to be prepared for judgment. And because Jesus had been speaking about judgment, some in the crowd automatically think of a group of Galileans whom Pilate had killed while they were offering sacrifices in the temple as an example, I want to suggest, of God's judgment. And we know that this is the case, or it seems like this is the case, because of what Jesus says. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Do you think that this happened to them because they were worse sinners than other people? Do you think that this is an example of God's judgment upon them, essentially, he's saying. So they hear Jesus warning about judgment, and then they automatically think about these Galileans who were killed. And so this tells us a couple of things. It tells us, one, um, that people had a they saw the world through a theological lens, first of all, meaning that they interpreted the things that they saw and heard in the world uh, as somehow relating to God or saying something about God or as God's direct action in the world. And this may be uh, less explicit in our own times, but it's no less common today, especially when something negative happens. When something negative happens in someone's life or something horrible happens in the world, people very often will automatically think or look at this through a theological lens. What does this say about God? How does this relate to him? How is, is this God's action in the world? Why would God do this? I think you know, the most um, pressing example is everything that's going on in the Ukraine right now, the war in the Ukraine. Why would God be doing this? Why would God allow this to happen? Maybe we might ask. So we all tend to view the world through a theological lens. So Good theology does really matter. The second thing that this makes clear is that um, viewing these people, viewed what happened to the Galileans as an expression of God's judgment, which also reveals a particular theology that they had. And that theology is sort of a theology of punishment, that, that bad things happen to bad people. And that God is constantly on the lookout to punish people who sin. And so if God is on the lookout to punish sin, then every example of something negative that occurs is an example in your mind of God's judgment upon those people. And an example of this would be John 9, when the disciples ask Jesus about the man who was born blind. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The automatic assumption when they see this blind person, this person who was born blind, uh, they automatically assume that this is an expression of God's judgment upon sin. And we'll see how Jesus responds to this in just a moment, but it's worth noting how different things are today. In the book that we read during Epiphany, um, The Jesus I Never Knew by Philip Yancey, Yancey made this very interesting point. It struck me anyways. He said, in Jesus's day, people assumed that tragedy hit those who deserved it. So somehow it was their fault, was the way that people viewed it then. And then, in, but he said, "I've noticed a remarkable change since Jesus's time in how people think about calamity. Nowadays, we tend to blame God for for the cataclysmic, which insurance companies call acts of God, and for the tri- and for the trivial. So, in Jesus's day, um, they blamed people for what befell befell them. In our day, we tend to blame God for the bad things that happened. I think that's an interesting thing to be thinking about." But what does this passage have to say to us? How does Jesus respond to the idea that tragedy is an expression of God's judgment upon sinful people? Well, Jesus very clearly in this passage says no. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. No. This had nothing to do with their sin, he says, but you need to repent otherwise you will likewise perish. And then he goes on to give another example of another recent tragedy that had occurred in Jerusalem at the time. 18 people were killed when a tower fell on them. And he says, "Or what about those 18 people on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all of the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so Jesus very clearly says, no, these tragedies did not befall these people because they were sinners. These are not acts of God's punishment on people for sin. It is not uh, their own fault that, that this occurred to them. This is not God's judgment on them. But there is still such a thing as judgment, and you need to repent. So Jesus is saying that these people are not examples of God's judgment, but he doesn't want us to do away with judgment entirely. Judgment is still coming. There is still such a thing as judgment, and we all need to repent, he says. You'll notice that Jesus doesn't answer the why question that's behind these statements. He doesn't answer directly here, at least. I think the Gospels are ultimately answering that question in the person of Jesus himself. But he does not answer the the why question directly here. Why did this occur? Instead, he simply calls them to repentance. And then Jesus elaborates the call to repentance with the following parable. He says, you heard it read already, a man had a fig tree planted in in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vinedresser, look for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none, cut it down. That's the image of judgment in this parable. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So judgment is still coming. But there's this interim period that's called for repentance, that calls for repentance. And so there's much that could be said about this parable, but I just want to point to a couple things today. The first is that the image of repentance that Jesus uses in this parable is one of bearing good fruit, common language for Jesus. And it reminds us that our lives are meant to bear fruit. John the Baptist said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so repentance is not simply a mental exercise. It's not simply recognizing that I've done wrong, that I'm a sinner in need of God's grace. That's true, of course, but it's not just that. It's also a turning, a turning and living the life that God is calling you to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a two-edged sword, so to speak. And so repentance, Jesus is saying in this parable, is also about living a life that bears the fruit of the kingdom, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We know them well. If you're concerned about judgment, then repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so one of the ways that I think um, we need to think about this is that when some of the crowd asked Jesus, what about those Galileans who were killed um, by Pilate as they were sacrifices in the temple was that God's judgment for sin part of what they're doing when they ask that question is that they themselves are sitting on the sidelines in judgment of other people they're sitting on the sidelines and they're looking at those around them judging whether they're sinner or saint whether they're holy or unholy cursed or blessed and part of what Jesus is trying to do in this parable I think is he's saying don't spend your life looking at other people and trying to judge other people. Repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Be the tree that God's calling you to be. Don't look at around at every other tree in God's garden. Don't worry about the status of anybody else. Don't worry about what it is. If they're doing what they've been called to do, uh, don't try to sit in judgment of anybody else. Just be the tree that God is calling you to be. That's what you have control of. They're asking the question, is this God's judgment of sinners? But by do, doing so, they are sort of tacitly assuming that they are sinful, that these people are sinful and are deserving somehow of judgment. And, God says, and Jesus says, don't worry about that. You just need to repent. That's the thing that you need to focus on. Repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Be the tree that God is calling you to be. But then beautifully in this parable, Jesus also, I think, gets into how we be the trees that God is calling us to be, how we bear fruit for the kingdom of God. The danger in focusing on other people is not just that we sit in judgment of them, but that we use them as measuring sticks for righteousness. And so what happens is that we understand God's call on our lives, it, it gets reduced to just being better than the person beside us. I think the most famous parable of this, of course, is the Pharisee and the tax collector, and they're praying in the temple and the Pharisees just, all he can pray is God, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over there. At least I'm better than him. And it can be so easy for us to live our lives looking at other people, just thinking, as long as I'm not better than him, at least I'm better than her. At least I didn't do you know, all the things that that person did over there. It's very easy for us to fall into that temptation. It's the temptation to compare ourselves to one another and think that as long as I'm better than the person beside me, then I'm okay. But what does Jesus say? He doesn't just say you must repent, but all must repent. All of us must repent or you will all likewise perish, he says. You see, the, the cornerstone of that kind of comparative righteousness is that we're constantly... Um, trying to make ourselves better than the person who is beside us. And it just feeds competition and self-righteousness, and it's toxic. But part of the beauty of this parable that Jesus tells in verses 6 through 9 is that the tree cannot bear fruit on its own. It cannot actually work up any sort of self-righteousness for itself by comparison to any of the other trees around. There's nothing that a tree can do to produce fruit in and of itself, at least in this parable anyways. Did anybody notice that in this parable? The answer to the call to repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance has nothing to do with doing it for ourselves. We cannot do it for ourselves. The tree actually needs the vine dresser. We need the care and attention and the nurture that only the gardener Can provide. Specifically, we need the gardener to come and dig out around it and to put on manures, what the parable says. And so that means that, to me, if our lives are to bear the fruit of the kingdom of God, it's not that we can do it for ourselves, it's that we need Jesus. We need the vine dresser, we need the gardener to come and care for us. We need Jesus to come and clear away all the brokenness and the sin of our lives to dig out the hurt and the harm, and the ego, and the vanity, and the destruction, and the pain, and the damage that our sin and our brokenness causes. We can't do it for ourselves. We need the gardener to come and clear out that land, to dig around the tree. And then in place of that, we need the gardener to put on manure. The seemingly dead and despised substance, but the substance that's actually teeming with life, enzymes, microorganisms, all sorts in there. And this, to me, is an image of the death of the Messiah. It's the death of Jesus that we actually need. The only thing that can produce life in us is the death of the Messiah working in us, nurturing the fruit of of the kingdom within us. Only the death of of Jesus will bring life in us. Only the death of Jesus will fertilize the life of the kingdom in us. We cannot do it ourselves. We can't do it by our own efforts. We can't do it by trying to be good or do good or be holy or be righteous, whatever it is. We can't do it by comparing ourselves to one another and thinking, as long as I'm better than the person beside me, then I'm okay. We need Jesus. We need the death of Jesus to produce life in each one of us. We need Jesus to come and clear out that sin and brokenness in our lives. We need him to put on manure, which is the death of Jesus, to produce the life of the kingdom in us. And finally, I think that this parable also reminds us that we are called to join Jesus in being manure for the life of the world as well that we're to pick up our cross and follow Jesus daily, that we're to die to self and live for God. We are to join our deaths to Jesus's death for the sake of the world, to die to self and selfish ambition, to die to self-righteousness and judging others, to die to comparing ourselves to other people and competing for God's approval, to die to vanity and pride and hypocrisy and arrogance and anger, all those things that separate us from God to allow those deaths to join in the saving death of Jesus and become part of the fertilizer that God is doing to recreate the world and to make all things new. Only those deaths will produce meaning and purpose in our lives as our deaths, our daily death, our picking up our cross and our following Jesus is joined with his saving death on the cross. So I guess the only question really is, what does this look like for you, for each one of us? What does this look like? What do you have to die to in order to stop sitting in judgment of those around you? What do you have to die to in order to know that there is nothing that you can do to save yourself and that you need the saving death of Jesus to produce life in you? What do you need to die to in order to stop competing with other people and comparing yourselves to others in seeking God's approval? And what will it look like for each one of us to pick up our cross and to follow Jesus unto death so that our lives can be part of what God uses to recreate the world, to be the fertilizer that God is using to bring about the recreation of all things? What does that look like in each one of our lives? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.